episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Izzy Sunday, Licensed Professional Counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, treatment for sex offenders. Welcome to the show, Izzy. Hi, thanks for having me. So Izzy, tell us about your credentials and uh, clinical experience. Okay, um, I have a master's degree in counseling um, and I am licensed in New York and Texas as a licensed mental health counselor. Um, And my clinical experience has been pretty diverse. Um, I actually interned at Rikers Island Correctional Facility or Rikers Island Jail, as many people know it. Nice. Yeah. Sorry. I know. I just, okay. So I'm a huge true crime slash prison show nerd. Um, One of my, one of my bachelor's degrees is in criminal justice and get this, but I did it as a hobby. Um, And so I know Rikers Island is like, you know kind of like one of the most dangerous, like, yeah. Notorious. Notorious. Yes. yes. Um, I used to also be really into true crime and I, you know, had my like Bundy obsession. <laughs> I was like, yep, oh. yep. Um, and that is, that has since kind of changed. Um, I, I can't imagine. watch, yeah, I can't watch any prison or jail shows documentaries yeah but other than that I just I avoid them um that kind of spurned my interest and passion in working in I guess you could say forensic psychology Uh it's that's so vague but um yeah and so then after that I worked in Austin on an act team which I won't get into because it's hard well, to explain well, well quick question how did working on the act team like did that partially lead you into wanting to work with the forensic population 
Yes. So I was a, what was my title? Criminal justice liaison to the ACT team in Austin. For people who don't know, an ACT team is essentially a team of people that go into homes and houses to do visits um, there in clients' houses rather than them coming into a clinic. And these are folks who have um, severe mental illness or a lot of co-occurring diagnoses, so maybe physical health issues and um, essentially the most kind of vulnerable people in Austin are likely to to be in an ACT team. Um, And so my job as the criminal justice liaison was to facilitate mental health care for people on the ACT team who had been arrested or had some kind of justice involvement. And so that included people coming out of state hospitals after they had been found not guilty by reason of insanity after committing a crime, as well as people who were found um, not competent to stand trial. So I used to kind of literally drive people back and forth from Travis County Correctional Center in my Mazda 2. And yes, that after doing that for a year, I I kind of burned out and I knew I wanted to continue working with justice involved people, um, but more kind of doing counseling rather than essentially care coordination or social work, right. what it really was. Um, and so then I worked for about two and a half, almost three years at a clinic doing sex offender treatment. And now I'm in private practice and I do not see as many people who are sex offenders because it's just me. Um, but I, I still can and still do. It's just a much it's a sort of a, it's a different setting and, and different. I can get into it later, but yeah. Uh, okay. Now my, I, in private practice, it is much different, but for, for, for three years, I did work in a clinic that's was solely for uh, people who had committed some type of sexual offense and were mandated to quote sex offender treatment unquote by parole, probation, the court, et cetera. Okay. And so what is the name of your practice? I just recently changed it. So it was my name. And then I actually changed it like a month ago to connect again, psychotherapy. Um, Because while there is this forensic component, the bulk of my work now um, is really kind of geared towards intimacy avoidance, um, avoiding attachment styles. um, Also just people coping with loneliness and depression and isolation. Um, I started it in the pandemic, right? So uh, I work with a lot of clients who um, were struggling maybe with feeling isolated before the pandemic, but then, you know, when that happened, you know, kind of found themselves um, in in a really tough spot. Um, And then then the forensic work I sort of do in addition to that, it's all kind of part of one practice. Uh, And I also see, see couples And part of my couple's kind of work is um, I specialize in, um, some people say betrayal or infidelity, Mm -hmm. Um, essentially, you know, what happens, especially when one partner is uh, struggling with out of control sexual behavior. 
so from the sex offender work now i i kind of i can see the progression yes partly that into working with uh i'm using quotes here sex addiction um right but which is now more it's you know called it's not uh, understood in that way yeah exactly so you know we say ocsb or out of control sexual behavior um and so and that includes you know pornography um addiction things like that um and so i do that individually and with couples yeah okay so at your practice do you accept insurance if so which ones if not why not no and i don't (laughs) the reason that no therapists do and for people listening who are i don't know have been in therapy or looking for a therapist I understand and it is really a travesty how can I curse on here? Yeah, please okay. do. How fucked up the insurance thing is in terms of private practice because if you live in any major city or any anywhere and you're looking for a therapist and you're like on Zocdoc or psychology today you have probably reached out to a therapist and have them tell you, I don't take insurance or I, you know, do what's called out of network benefits. Um, and the reason for that is because insurance companies don't reimburse therapists any, like, you know, anywhere even close to our rate. Yeah. For example, Medicaid and Medicare reimburse, you know, between $40 and $60 a session. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't take insurance because I it's I wouldn't I wouldn't make a, a living, um, and and that's true for probably most therapists I know in private practice. But I will say it is a huge issue because therapy should be affordable and accessible for everyone, and the fees that most therapists charge, let's say in New York. I mean, the average fee in New York City is between two hundred and five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, you know, who's who can pay that really? Um, so this is, I don't know, such a loaded question because even as I answer it, I'm just, I feel torn about my own fee and 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 not taking insurance. It's a strange place to be as a therapist, especially as a therapist who used to work. Um, with people who, um, you know, could not afford therapy, hadn't been in therapy before, um, and working community mental health. So, I totally, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I just, I just recently got off of insurance panels, and I like, I struggled with it for so long, but I was working sixty plus hours a week just to make what my peers were making, you know, who were working 20 hours a week, for example. Um, And that's not a place you want your therapist to be, right? Um, And so as soon as I realized the impact it was having on me, I pulled back and I um, have set a lot more boundaries regarding my fee, but I do, you know, in the background, of course, struggle with like, well, I want to work with everyone. You know, like I don't want my fee to be a barrier, but the reality of it is, is that it is a barrier and we can try and ease that in situations where we, we can, you know, and still be able to make a living, but you know, it's shitty. <laughs> it's, I of course have a sliding scale. Uh, I decided when I opened my practice that I would 
have 20% of the practice be for sliding scale clients. Um, I don't know why you do percentages did, but do you do a like traditional sliding scale or is it more of a reduced fee? It's probably more of a reduced fee because I don't think that I well actually. So I do have a sliding scale where like, I, I, I don't even know also too how you would define like, what is a sliding scale? I think of it as you use poverty guidelines. So the way I did it in New York or do it in New York is I think it's it's $70,000 or less, either 60 or $70,000, which is nowhere near the poverty scale. But for New York, that's not a lot of money. Um, and so from there I'll offer reduced fees. Um, but I actually started with open path collective, which if anybody's looking for a form mm-hmm. of therapy, it's a great place to start. And they range from $40 to $80. And so I was just kind of using that for a while. Um, so I probably do a bit of both because I also see clients, um, you know, for let's say like a hundred dollars less than my fee, um, which is not really a sliding scale. It is a reduced fee. So. Yeah, it's probably confusing <laughs> for people listening. Yeah. But. What about in Texas regarding your sliding scale? Like, is it lower in Texas? Yeah, like, is it similar or? I mean, the weird thing is I'm licensed here, but I only have like two clients. One's a couple, one's individual who are in Texas. Okay. And they're okay. both out of pocket. Gotcha. Um, but I advertise lower fees for Texas residents because... Because New York, it's just New York. Exactly. Yeah, gotcha. Um, Okay, so in your practice, do you have weekend or evening appointments? I just changed my (laughs) schedule. I was working probably almost every evening. And I just am sort of, I've been used to it. I mean, I I worked weekends and evenings for years. Yeah, Um, You probably did too, working in community mental health and then also... Um, when I worked at the clinic, uh, with sex offenders, I, for part of that time, I also worked at a private practice, <laughs> any therapist listening, <laughs> be careful if you're working at a clinic and taking a second job, it ended up being really difficult. Um, although I, I am glad that I, I did it, but, uh, yeah, I now work one evening and I don't work weekends. Um, nice. yeah. So it's kind of what I've decided. Although, of course, I do have one couple scheduled next week on a day that I don't usually see do evening. <laughs> it's always, and every, any therapist. It happens. Yeah, it's like yeah. over overcommit yourself, but yeah. Okay. For now, one, one evening, no weekends. I usually work about 12 to 7, and I'm just not a morning person. Like, So I, I would love to be done earlier in the day, but because of that, I, I just can't. <laughs> I always thought I was not a morning person and I'm really not, but for some reason doing therapy, I've found that I'm better in the morning. I don't know. Um, but I really do enjoy, you know, having my kind of Thursday, which is like 12 to eight or two days, something like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It changes for me. I, I, I am kind of mercurial in that way. And so, um, yeah, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I really want to start early and other times I, I don't. So, um, well, and I think we have to like change our schedules to fit like our evolving needs too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's easier now people can, you know, with virtual therapy can 
you know, we can have a session at 12 p.m. on a Wednesday. Um, but before, you know, it, who's going to, who can do that? So Right, right. Yeah, I think telehealth has made therapy much more accessible to a lot of people than it wasn't before, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, so thinking about and being a therapist, is being a therapist your first career? And if not, what was? Yes. Um, I wanted to be a psychologist initially since... I don't know, sophomore year of high school. So this is this is kind of it for me. Um, and now what I'm realizing is I want to do other things in addition to therapy, whether that means writing more or um, even advocating for certain things within our field. So yeah, it's been my first career, but I, I don't think it's going to be my last. I, I see myself kind of shifting in my life and doing different things. But um, for now, I, of course, love seeing clients and I'll continue doing that. What is it when you were younger that made you want to be a psychologist? Like what drew you to being a therapist? A couple of things. I think I was always, and a lot of people say this, I'm sure the friend that everyone kind of came to. And um, I was always really curious about human behavior. And that kind of coincided with my fascination with true crime and uh serial killers and sex offenders and why i couldn't reconcile the the degree to which human behavior kind of varied in terms of cruelty so it was hard for me it's sort of like well how does somebody do something like that um and why and can that person change, I guess? So mm -hmm. yeah, had that fascination. And then I majored in psychology and criminology in undergrad and uh, then realized that I didn't have the grades <laughs> or the research experience to get a PhD. Um, so I applied to counseling programs. Cool. So Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, pets, family, etc.? I always, I always hate these questions. I never know how to answer them in terms of hobbies because I'm like, what do I do? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, sadly, work has taken up so much of my focus and time. And now I'm 29 and I'm realizing like, oh, this is not like career isn't everything. Um, so that's kind of an interesting shift that's happening for me. I love reading. I love swimming. I love horseback riding. I love traveling. Um, I've been doing more writing recently. So that's maybe, I guess, a hobby. Um, cool. I probably do the most regularly. Um, yeah, my, I'm kind of a, a person that I, I say I'm from Austin, but I was born in Mexico, lived in Portugal, um, as a child until like six years old and then New York and Long Island and then Austin. And so I've always been pretty nomadic, both when I was younger, not by my own choice. And now as an adult, I was in New York and then Mexico City, and now I'm back in Texas and I plan on moving again. So, yeah. Um, ¿Sabe español? Un poco. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the amount of time that I've spent 
yeah, in Mexico and I'm not fluent yet, but my goal is to become fluent. Um, I'm not fluent either. Just, just <laughs> I, I speak a little bit of Spanish, but I, yeah, I was just curious. But, so that's, that's something actually that I really want to do in the next year is become fluent in Spanish. So um, yeah, I, in terms of family, I don't know. I have a brother who is younger by two years. Um, I'm a person who you know, my friends are also kind of my chosen family and, and mm-hmm. they're important to me. Um, so yeah, TV shows. Okay. I don't know. I've always been a huge Seinfeld fan and Curb Your <laughs> Love that kind of comedy. Um, I've also watched Sex in the City, sadly. <laughs> 20 times well living in new york you have to i'm sure it's like a criteria for living there or something and and, yeah and it's really actually funny how many kind of true parallels there are in that show like (laughs) everything is cliche but it's also you know sort of like weirdly accurate too to living in the city i mean it's obviously a very kind of like particular experience but um just the people you meet and i don't know I, i could talk about that you know, living in New York was interesting, but yeah. Um, books. Um, I'm reading a lot more fiction now, which is is a nice break from just reading therapy books. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for telling us a little bit about yourself. So my next question, I want to kind of separate into two questions. Um, so what modalities do you draw upon when working with sex offenders and just in general, you know, in your work overall, what modalities do you draw upon? So in sex offender treatment, um, the modality question comes with a lot more complication and weight, I guess. Right. The field has now shifted from more what was kind of a it's called the R&R model risk needs responsivity and that's still a model that's widely used um but some newer kind of things happening in the field are more based on not so much treating the behavior from a medical model perspective so you're doing that but you're also helping people who have offended maximize what are called like pro-social values in their lives. Mm -hmm. So one of, for example, the risks associated with offending is isolation. Mm -hmm. So somebody has gone to prison for a sex offense, they come out and they're just as isolated as they were before. That's a risk factor, right? For sure. What are you working on? You're working on relationships, working on communication, you're working on, um, you know, feeling connected into a community, getting a job. All of these things are associated with somebody staying out of jail. Um, and that model is called the good lives model. Um, and so that was the, the sort of modality that we used at the clinic I worked at. And in my own personal work, um, I consider myself more psychodynamic, so I'm really interested in, you know, sort of childhood and adolescence and, um, relationships with family members and, you know, attachment styles. And so I do a lot more kind of, I guess, relational processing, um, and 
I'm, you know, do a lot of reading on psychoanalytic and psychodynamic theory. Uh, and then I, of course, you know, use more CBT when it's appropriate, although I find CBT incredibly boring. I don't like <laughs> And I don't think it's all that it's cracked up to be. Um, every, most clients who come in who bring up modality, it's always CBT. And it's always like, oh, because this is just the best model, right? And it's like, no, actually, the research doesn't really support that. Um, so... I'm not anti-CBT. I use it. It can be incredibly helpful, but that's not really my go-to. It's more psychodynamic. Um, and then I, you know, do more skills kind of stuff in addition to that. So, yeah. So <clears throat> the way I would describe my approach is like a relational, classically Rogerian conversation-based, process-based, insight-oriented CBT. Very specific and very, <laughs> um, but I know, I know what, yeah, I know what you mean in that, that makes sense because I think CBT alone um, is- It's too formulaic. Right, and by the way, nobody is doing true CBT. Right. 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 Well, the, the issue that I have with so many, so many, you know, models and theoretical orientations is that they tend to be so formulaic. And, and the other thing that I take issue with, I've had so many clients try like DBT or EMDR or something and not achieve any good results or like be told that they're doing it wrong and then end up yeah. feeling like, awful about themselves because there's something wrong with them because this thing that helps everyone apparently is supposed to help them too. And it's not, and, you know, right. I just, I just well, have huge issues with that. And if you don't like or trust your therapist or your it's therapist not work. very good, then learning DBT. Okay. will only do so much for you. And I, by the way, I love DBT. Yeah, um, me too. I draw upon it all the time. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that it, it's going to be some sort of magical cure for everybody. And it's like anything else in life. It's, you know, yeah, therapy is not a cure. It's not, it, it, it's not as if you go to therapy and even if you gain insight, right, your problems melt away. It, it's more kind of like, okay, there's some time sometimes in your life when that's exactly what you need. Right. And therapy has changed my life. It's hopefully changed my client's life. And then there's other times when maybe what you need is, I don't know. Um, uh, moving to a different place, right. Or starting a new job or, I don't know, anything that goes into, and I kind of, rambling a bit now, but I hope that makes sense that, yeah, therapy, I think is not, it's not, it, it's powerful and it can really alleviate suffering. Um, but that doesn't mean that even if you know the skills or, you know, or you gain some insight that that's going to be the thing that's going to make you feel better every time you have something happen in your life. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that part of therapy also is 
like it's helpful to see that there's multiple ways of thinking about something and to be able to hold the dialectic that potentially all of them could be true. Um, you know, I, I think for me, what I think is helpful about therapy is the way it can help shape how we think in a healthier way, in a way that makes more sense, um, in a way that isn't going to cause us as much distress. You know, um, that's where I think therapy is. But yeah, situations are going to vary and the same thing isn't always going to work across contexts. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> and you said it much more eloquently. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because as I wrote about in um, this interview I did, I think the question was, you know, what's, can you talk about, you know, what is the most fundamental change component in therapy? Basically what works, right? Or what have you found that works? And A relationship. <laughs> yes, always. And also just in general, there's no one answer or thing, you know, it can be a mixture. And so, yes, exactly. Um, when you're looking for a therapist, you know, most important, one of the most important things is, do you like them? Do you feel comfortable with them? Do you and trust then, them? And then, and then, you know, after a while you can ask yourself, like, what am I getting out of this? But mm -hmm. yeah, initially the relationship, that's really the most important thing. Um, because we're also people too, with our own, our own sets of issues for sure. Yep. Um, and so we're not really, we're not doctors. We're not, you know, gonna, we don't provide cures. Right. Right. And, and I mean, even mental health medication, antidepressants, they don't take away all of somebody's symptoms of depression, you know, symptoms still persist. And that's where I think therapy can be helpful in like learning how to deal with what, what's left after you know, medication, for example, and talking about like depression and anxiety. Um, I mean, if, if medication is indicated, of course, we know it's not always indicated. Um, but that was just a thought I had. But let's get down to the nitty gritty. So my first question is, when we use the term sex offenders for the purposes of this podcast, like, what does that mean? Yeah, it doesn't really mean much of anything. Um, <laughs> And probably the term will change and probably people will be very against that. Um, that's actually already happening. So there is a term called MAPS, which is minor attracted persons. Yes, and I'm familiar with that. Not necessarily sex offenders. So who is a sex offender? Technically, a sex offender is anybody in the registry. Right. Which now is almost a million or over a million people in the wow. US. So when you hear the term sex offender, yep, just means somebody who is on the registry. Although um, I'm sure there are people who have been called sex offenders who are not on the registry or have been taken right. off the registry. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, how you could kind of define it. Um, and to get on the registry, there usually has to be some form of sexual offense that's committed. But when you think sex offender, you know, it could be somebody who has committed a crime, abused a child committed a sexual assault. It could also be somebody who uh, was promoting prostitution, which is a whole other can of worms. Right. Yeah. The argument of should those folks be in the registry? Some people say definitely not. Some people say they should. Um, so for 
yeah, for people listening, it really is a catch-all term that can include so many different types of people and types of offenses and, and yeah, it can be, it's very vague. Okay. Okay. So just out of curiosity, what's a typical day like working with sex offenders in an outpatient clinic? It's a typical day. So when I was at the clinic, I ran co-facilitated groups and did individual therapy. And so I'd come in in the morning, I would co-facilitate a group. This group could be for internet offenders. Uh, It could be for very high risk offenders. It could be for offenders with mental illness. It could be for offenders with substance abuse issues. And then I would see between like six and sometimes 11 people a day. Um, And sessions would be either 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, And in those sessions, I could be doing an assessment for somebody who was just referred to us and had literally gotten out of prison the day before. I could be doing a psychotherapy session with somebody who I've been working with for two years, talking about their experiences on parole, probation, talking about mitigating risk factors, talking about their offenses, talking about what's happening in their lives. Um, And a lot of those current events, you know, were, you know, sort of based on their experience in the registry. So for example, somebody looking for a job who can't find a job, who's a sex offender, somebody who has a girlfriend or a boyfriend who, or partner who, you know, now, they have to disclose their status. So, yeah. And, and by the way, a lot of the work is, you know, kind of the same work that you would do in any clinic, which is um, working with people around depression, anxiety, suicidality, um, relationship issues, things like that. Okay. Um, so how do you manage risk while also providing therapy and managing a relationship with a client who has offended and, I mean, you know, obviously has very poor boundaries. Right. This is such a complicated, complex question. So when you're working in with mandated clients, there are some, you know, kind of baked in. What's what I'm looking for? You know, kind of. Uh, um, things to help you mitigate risk, unless okay. you have somebody who is, let's say, pre-trial. And I can explain that in a second. Okay. Um, but when somebody is coming into your office or your clinic, they're usually going to be on probation or parole, so they are being supervised, right? right. Anybody working with this population has to work with their su- supervisor, which is their parole officer or probation officer, which is also a whole other topic instead of issues. Um, And so really the most important thing is you cannot do this work alone. And that's why in private practice now, I can only see very particular clients because it would be unethical and appropriate for me to provide sex offender treatment um, for many offenders just on my own for a couple of reasons, safety. And then also group therapy is really probably the the best thing for this population, not just individual therapy. So, Well, and I can imagine with telehealth that poses like, a lot of other issues. Yeah. 
It does. And I, that is a really interesting thing to kind of get into because the clinic I worked at did pivot when we had to during the pandemic. And you talk about poor boundaries <laughs> that went way up, right? And you yep. sort of have that conversation again with clients around boundaries, either because they are, you know, kind of testing you and seeing how far they can go, mm-hmm. or because of just not knowing how to do phone therapy and not knowing that it's inappropriate to like go to the bathroom in the middle of a session, which yes, <laughs> right, right, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So a lot of it's kind of teaching just basic communication and boundaries and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, how do you sort of mitigate risk? Yeah. So you, you can't think about your clients in an isolated way, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. you have to be kind of coordinating with other therapists and then their supervisor, which is again, parole probation, um, and communicating everything, you know, and that's, what's really interesting with confidentiality because it's completely different with this population. And that is, there's always a, a threat to trust and you kind of have to wonder it's, you know, how much can your client ever really trust you if they're mandated? And that's kind of something that right. you both sides. Um, and then, and so then how do you sort of facilitate rapport? And the best way to do that is just to be as transparent as possible. Right. right? And so it's, it's, you know, I always validated, you're not going to trust me in the beginning. Why should you? Right. Um, and I will always tell you if I'm going to communicate with your probation or parole officer, mm-hmm. um, I'll do it if I can before I have that conversation, but I, that's always, you know, I'm always going to tell you at some point, um, and expect these are the situations that will warrant me talking to the person who's supervising you. Um, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and that's really, yeah. Transparency and honesty on the role of the clinician which is sometimes harder than you would think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What is the biggest misconception about sexual abuse and sexual offending? That most sex offenders will offend or abuse again. Um, And that sexual abuse happens mostly to strangers um, as in the perpetrator is a stranger to the victim, I would say, uh, and that sexual offending is based on some kind of innate drive or fundamental pathology that makes somebody want to continue or have to continue reoffending. Yes, it is true that there are people who are extremely high risk, but that is not the majority or the context in which most sexual offenses happen, mostly um, okay. within familial situations. Right. Most victims know their perpetrators, um, not the kind of uh, guy that you see on Law and Order SVU. Right. 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 Okay. What does research suggest works in treatment? This is a really tough question, and it's actually been studied a lot, um, or at least recidivism has been studied a lot. Um, and so the Good Lives model, for example, has shown kind of promising results, but it's kind of the same thing within any treatment. It's kind of like uh, a lot of modalities have the same 
effectiveness rates. And so it really more comes down to what is a context in which people are receiving treatment? So is it prison-based? Is it community-based? And if we just think about community-based, you know, there are, there are some things that do have a really big impact on recidivism. And those things are not necessarily just treatment. They are, is this person in a relationship? Are they living with their partner? Um, do they have friends in a support system? Um, are they receiving mental health treatment if they are struggling with depression or bipolar disorder or some other mental health diagnosis? Um, and are they connected with their own families, right? And so for a lot of people, this is not the case who have committed a sexual offense. Um, and so within treatment, you know, there's, there's, course talk therapy and then there's more extreme forms of treatment which include chemical castration mm -hmm. very controversial thing and a lot of those severe treatments there isn't a lot of evidence to support them because they're in the context of let's say civil confinement hospitals where nobody gets out ever so how can you sort of know if something is working if right. the person is in treatment you know sort of in, in a controlled environment Exactly. Yes. Uh, for their entire lives sometimes. So it's a complicated question. Um, but I think that we do know that, uh, I think generally I can say that offenders kind of have to acknowledge at least the offense, um, and not be in denial about it. Right. So, so, exploring your offense, exploring the behavior, and then talking about what you're going to do if you are triggered in the future, that's all really important. And I think does have an impact on probably somebody's likelihood of reoffending. although there's always exceptions. There are people who do great in treatment and you think, wow, this person's done so much work and then, you know, they, they reoffend. so. Now, I, I know there's a cycle in offending, which includes grooming. Can you tell us a little more about this cycle? There's different theories and the cycles, you know, different theories that say different things about kind of a cycle of offending, but yes, um, grooming is part, usually, usually part of any kind of offense, especially with a child. Um, and by the way, grooming can sometimes happen consciously and can sometimes mm -hmm. happen not so consciously, right. especially if you have somebody who really doesn't understand. And by the way, a lot of offenders don't understand. They don't understand their own sexuality a lot of the time. And this may be a shock to people, but they don't, don't always understand what they're doing is wrong mm -hmm. and don't always understand why it's inappropriate to be right. sexual with a child. And so grooming, you know, can look like you know, sort of any manipulative behavior to gain the trust of a victim. And by the way, of course, can happen with adults too. Right. Um, and essentially what grooming is really about is boundaries and getting to the point where, you know, your victim uh, is, you know, starts to become sort of feel more and more you know, comfortable is the wrong word. I don't want to use that word, but more and more kind of exposed to loose boundaries. Mm -hmm. okay? So, 
and and you do that by kind of testing them again and again, right? So it kind of starts with maybe small things, right? Like, um, you know, going swimming and they're, you know, okay, we're going to go swimming in the nude, right? Something like that, that maybe sounds kind of innocuous. And then it's kind of, okay, so then how does that start and end with then a sexual offense happening? There's a lot happening right, right. in between, right? Um, and so, yeah, grooming is really about testing boundaries and, um, and doing that consistently over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there are many different types of sex offenses and sex offenders. My understanding, which may or may not be the case, I quite frankly don't know, but my understanding is that much of this begins with a fantasy and becomes more and more difficult for the individual to not act on these thoughts, kind of similar to like a compulsion. Um, For our listeners out there who worry, who do have these fantasies and worry that they may cross that line, what do you have to say to them? The first thing I would say is you're not alone at all. Second thing I would say is that having a fantasy or a thought is not a crime. It can lead to a crime, right? Because any form of sexual abuse against a child, against another adult, against somebody who is vulnerable um, physically, that is a crime. And so, but having a thought or having a fantasy is not. Um, So I'll say a couple of things. The first one is a lot of sex offender treatment was developed around this idea that we need to treat fantasies because fantasies spur the behavior. And this was really popular like in the 70s and 80s. It's not necessarily the case for many people who have committed a sexual offense, which may not make sense to a lot of people. And yes, any kind of sexual act involves some form of maybe fantasizing right before, like, 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 of course, right. There has to be something that you're, that feels pleasurable about that, but it's not as if every sex offender had some deviant fantasy to begin with, that then they became so out of control and they acted on it. It's kind of the, it can be situational too. Um, and I could talk more about that later, but in terms of somebody who is experiencing fantasies um, about somebody that they know, child, I would say, first of all, that you're not alone. And I would say the second thing is, is that you can talk to a professional and talking to them will not mean that you're going to be arrested for having these thoughts. Um, the most important thing is to be honest, because a huge part of offending is secrecy. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you're aware of it or not, you know, the more you kind of hold these things in um, and don't talk to people about it, it's not as if it's going to go away. It'll probably get worse. Um, And the best way to kind of figure out what those fantasies are about, why you're having them, what they mean to you is to talk to somebody. And maybe it, it, you know, could mean that, um, through talk therapy that you can figure out, you know, sort of why they're happening. Um, or it may be that these are, these are fantasies based on an attraction to children. Um, and there are groups for what are called minor attracted persons, like I mentioned earlier, uh, where you can meet other people who have these same thoughts and fantasies. And the idea behind that is to hold each other accountable. Um, 
because there are lots of people who have sexual fantasies about children who do not offend. And that is the whole reasoning behind a group called Virtuous Pedophiles, which I don't know if you've heard of them. And their sole mission is to prevent sexual abuse, right? And these are people who identify as being attracted to, to kids. It's a very hard topic. It brings up a lot of feelings for a lot of people, and I understand that. Um, but again, just because you have a thought or a fantasy does not mean that you are, in fact, a pedophile that you're going to offend. Um, but it is a risk factor, and that me- and that's why it's so important to talk to folks about what's happening. And there are a lot of therapists who don't know how to treat this. And that's why looking for therapists who specialize in this area is super important. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess that's the initial advice that I would give. Good answer. Very good answer. Um, and I'm curious, would it be fair to call a minor attracted person would that be fair to call that a fetish? I don't know. My initial response would be no. But there is a growing... There are growing conversations around sexual orientation and paraphilias. And now we get... Don't even, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> and then we get into... It's very complicated because, of course, we know what happened with gay people being right. essentially demonized as being pedophiles. Right. The question is, for somebody, for let's say folks who are minor, let's consider themselves minor attracted persons, some of them will say, this is my sexual orientation. I don't necessarily ascribe to that. Um in terms of language, like, do I think that we should, that minor attracted people should have their own sexual orientation? I, I don't no. know. Um, because again, it gets into what's a crime and what is thoughts and what are fantasies. Right. But the thing is, any relationship that's sexual with a child is a crime. Right. right. And that is not, so, so then, so then that becomes kind of the argument against why would you call that a sexual orientation? So I don't think it's the right language to use. Um, I think that's an attempt by that community to normalize that the offending, to be honest with you. I think that's what that is. It, yes. And so it can't like Nambla, for example, right? Exactly. Nambla. Either- Have you ever seen that South Park episode, by the way? I think so. I'm probably. It, I- if. If 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 somebody listening to this to this episode hasn't seen the Nambla episode of South Park, it is eye-opening because it is like absurd but true. You know? So can you tell us what Nambla stands for? Nambla, Nambla stands for a national, was it Man Boy Love Association? Yes. And I actually don't even know if they're around anymore. Um, but they essentially argue that essentially pedophilia is okay. And, th- and this is, <sighs> these are the kinds of groups and people who um, any therapist working in this field, anybody who knows anything about what's happening with minor attracted persons and what, what they say, like it is the arch enemy of, of it all because that is really feeds into kind of the stereotype that 
you know, if you're, if you have this attraction towards children, you know, you must justify it or you are trying to normalize it. And that is not the case for everybody. Of course it is for these people in Mambla who should not be, I mean, it's a free speech issue, I guess, but they pose a really huge threat and it's very scary. Um, I will say I have worked and anybody who's done this work can attest, I'm sure to the same thing. There are some people who what's called arousal template, right? But essentially what that means is who are primarily attracted to children and or adolescents. That is who they are sexually attracted to. It's who they prefer a relationship with. It's who they um, identify with, which again is Michael Jackson comes to mind. <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, switch so what a sort of almost cliche or but but exactly. Right. And that is actually on the to the stable 2007, which is a risk assessment tool. One of the things that you're looking for when you're assess, assessing for risk is emotional identification with children. So it <laughs> While yes, that is who they're attracted to primarily for the people who are, right? Because not, by the way, not every pedophile is only attracted to children. We can get right. into the nuances of that. Um, but let's say that you're primarily attracted to children. So you, you know, I guess you could say, you know, is that a sexual orientation? Well, it's also a risk factor for offending. It's on the the assessment tool as a risk factor for offending. And so it's a paraphilia, it's not an orientation. Um, and, and a paraphilia is again, in the DSM, it's refers to any kind of, uh, I guess, pathology related to um, sexual behavior. So it does include things like uh, sadism, frauderism, I think is on there. Mm -hmm. um, which homosexuality was in the DSM up until I believe it was taken out in the version that was released in 1973. I think it was even after that. Maybe it was 78. It was in the 70s. It was, yeah. yeah. And, and, and there, I mean, conversion therapy still exists. So I know that's it's so, yeah. it's so, it's really complicated and tough to have the conversation around the DSM paraphilia, sexual offending without considering our country's history with thinking about sex, sexuality, gender. Right. It's really tough. Um, but what I will say is, again, you know, this behavior is a crime, right? Um, we've decided as, as a society that it's a crime, and we have for a long time. That does not mean that having a fantasy is a crime. And once right. you start thinking about thoughts and fantasies as crimes, which is arguably kind of already happening. I can get into that in a second. A lot of issues arise. It's dangerous. Yeah, that's dangerous. Very dangerous. And by the um, way, that makes someone that much more less likely to get to get help. There's and more likely to, re to offend. Then. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. There's a famous study in Germany, and the name will come to me in a second. Um, but they did essentially an experiment where they advertised, you know, are you having these fantasies? Are you thinking about children in this way? Here's this uh, clinic and this, this help that you can get. And people actually used it. 
And that means that, you know, a victim, right? Um, Victims are are being prevented from being created. So um, yeah, people have to feel comfortable asking for help to get treatment. Otherwise, you know, sexual abuse will continue. So the the biggest thing in sex offender treatment is prevention. Right. That's the biggest thing and nobody talks about it. And uh, that's what's going to make the most difference is preventing preventing it from happening in the first place. Okay. So what do we know about the treatment of LGBTQIA plus sex offenders, both within the mental health treat, both within mental health treatment and within the law? This is also really complex. And I will refer anybody who wants to know more to the Williams Institute. Um, at UCLA, who has done many studies on experiences of LGBT people in incarcerated settings uh, for sexual offenses, and then also on the registry. I'm actually volunteering in a study right now looking at experiences on the registry, so I can talk a bit about that. Um, And what tends to happen is that, um, you know, people with with kind of also in general marginalized identities when it comes to sexual offending are sometimes more likely to be prosecuted. Um, So if you think about two like adolescent, uh, let's say, you know, 18 and 16 um, gay relationships, for some reason tend to, to be more Um, prosecuted than heterosexual relationships. And what does that come down to? Probably parents, right? Are they going to report this kind of statutory thing with their son, right, who is gay or or son or daughter who is straight? And that's a, a, a huge issue because that means that there's, you know, disproportionate amount of LGBT youth um, represented in probation and juvenile situations. Um, when I say juvenile, I mean court, I mean treatment centers, um, schools. So, yeah. Um, and then, um, within reporting, reporting is a huge issue for, um, I think, and gender comes into this too. Um, but I think, um, sexual offending, um, within the LGBTQ community. So it's, yeah. And I'm definitely not an expert. I would say definitely look into the Williams Institute at UCLA. Um, there is now more attention in the research, but this is a population within sex offender treatment that has been largely ignored. Um, and so there's all kinds of implications there. Like if you're trans and you're a sex offender, um, are you going to get the same kind of treatment? I mean, no, probably. <laughs> Let's no. be honest, right? Yeah. In a clinic, in a jail, in a jail, are you, there's different states that legislate this, but at Rikers Island, for example, um, you know, are, let's say if you're suicidal and you're trans at Rikers Island, you will not necessarily be within like the women's or, or men's like so essentially you you don't always get put in with your gender identity mm-hmm. 
And that's insane because then you are so much higher risk for assault and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of jails now don't have these rules anymore, but that still happens. And it happens, especially if there's um, like a, a suicidal gesture or something. And then, you know, people argue that it isn't capacity or we can't, we don't have the, the space or we can't, you know, have separate cells or things. And, and it's really awful. Um, and so anybody can also research, um, research that topic online too, and, and look into what's happening in jails and prisons and Rikers Island in particular. Um, which is another reason why it should be closed and it's being closed as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about racial disparities and how sex offenses are prosecuted and within treatment? So, yeah, this is something that's getting more attention in research, I think, recently. Um, what we do know is a couple of things. Um, there's a disproportionate number of African-American men in terms of who's being prosecuted for rape and then within civil confinement for rape. Um, And okay, what does that mean in terms of civil confinement? And again, the UCLA Williams Institute did this study. Essentially, they're more likely to be confined for the same offenses as white offenders. So it goes back into this centuries old racist you know, kind of stereotype, I guess you could say, or really what it is just used to, you know, reason to um, incarcerate people and, you know, label Black men as being somehow uh, more dangerous or uh, sort of sexually violent. Um, and, And this is something that has been around for a really long time. Um, And you think about what happened, um, Jim Crow, and before that, right, with this being used as a justification to literally commit murders and lynchings and things like that. Mm -hmm. So this sort of (sighs) disgusting, toxic, sort of racist sentiment obviously still exists. And it is, I think, part of what's happening with um, how African-American men in particular and boys um, are prosecuted for sexual offenses and are then uh, more likely to be confined for sexual offenses um, in, in comparison to their, their, their white counterparts. Even though there's vastly more white offenders, um, they make up the largest population. So yeah, um, that's one example of a really, of a disparity that just now is getting more attention kind of in, in research. Gotcha. Okay. It's a lot of work to be done. Um, what are some of the biggest risk factors for recidivism within this population? And, and what is the recidivism rate? I mentioned one earlier, which is emotional identification with children, right? So that is one of the clinical risk factors. So if if you are, you know, kind of identify almost more of a child yourself. And there's some really fascinating research on this um, that is getting more biological, which people, you know, you can argue against. But but what's really interesting is that um, in a population of people who are treated as pedophiles, right? So they are pedophilic, uh, more likely to be left-handed, more likely to be smaller in stature, 
um, sometimes have more childlike features, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so emotional identification with children is a risk factor. Um, again, comes back to kind of like, you know, who, uh, what are you like in terms of fantasies? What who are you attracted to? If you're attracted to children generally, that's a risk factor. So that is in there as well as um, isolation is huge. So loneliness and isolation is a huge risk factor for sexual offending, especially with children in terms of adult victims um, criminality in general is a risk factor. So if you are committing violent acts against people in general, there's some data suggests, okay, maybe you'd be more likely to commit a sexual assault. Um, psychopathy, antisocial personality disorder is a risk factor, obvious reasons. Um, and then a lot of it is environmental and external. So things like, um, unemployment, which, nobody really talks about, which is interesting, which is, yes, um, there was a study a long time ago that found, yeah, one of the sort of biggest predictors, you know, for a sex offense happening was, you know, a father, right, male in the household who was unemployed. And um, then is that much more likely to offend against a daughter, stepdaughter situation? And I can explain explain more about why that might happen. But if you just kind of think about, um, you know, what happens when somebody is unemployed for a number of years, somebody is in a marriage that um, is unhappy or unfulfilled, and then you mix in maybe substance abuse, and then you mix in um, maybe depression or untreated mental illness, all of these things are risk factors for um, sexual abuse happening or sexual events happening. What's interesting to me is you, you listed one of the risk factors as isolation. To me, I mean, I totally support the idea of sex offenders having to register, but at the same time, how much does the registration impact isolation and contribute to recidivism. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of research done by um, Jill Levinson and another researcher whose name is escaping me. I'll try to remember it on the registry. And what people are finding is not only does the registry not do anything, it does not prevent sexual offenses. Most people in the registry, you know, they're put on there after one offense. It's not as if, because really who should be aware of the registry is police officers. The common, the public, it does not prevent a sexual offense from happening to be on the registry. Um, what it does is stigmatize people, mm-hmm. makes it literally impossible to find a job, which is associated with um, not, not, you know, not reoffending. Um, it makes it really hard to establish any kind of connection to community. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening in places like Florida where there are people, I think actually it did happen where, uh, it is required now to put sex offender on a driver's license. Oh, wow. So you essentially kind of create this whole sort of other class. Right. 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 And make it impossible for them to reintegrate into the community. And the truth is they have to reintegrate into the community in order for there not to be, um, 
offending happening in the future. And also just for logistical reasons, you cannot keep people in jail forever. And a lot of people who uh, are in jail and prison for sexual offenses get out just based on laws um, and sentencing. So I don't support the registry for the public. I support it for law enforcement and employers, obviously, um, but not the public. Um, really, all that it's kind of done in my mind is, is stigmatize people, increase risk, and then also uh, has led to um, a lot of vigilante crimes. So there are mm-hmm. people who have been murdered right. on the registry. Um, and it, it also isn't managed well at all. So you have right. some people on there who they were supposed to register 20 years ago and they just stopped and nobody followed up. So not only is it just kind of doesn't do anything, but it also isn't even effectively managed. Right. right? Um, and it's not accurate. You have all kinds of, of really um, just badly run things with the registry. So yeah, it, um, in my mind is just not helpful. Got it. Okay. Good to know. What do you wish you had known before you started working with this population? I guess probably their their recidivism rate, which I didn't answer earlier, but I can answer now, which is that sex offenders are among among violent offenders, the least likely to reoffend. Now, I will couch this with how many sex offenses happen that aren't reported. Right. Right. So it's not just a black and white thing of, oh, this, they're less dangerous than we thought they were. No, not the case necessarily. But I do think it's important to understand how misconceptions around sexual offending have actually made it so that we're not actually preventing sexual abuse happening. Right. So and this is what I'm so passionate about, I get kind of angry about is the amount of resources that go into, and, and by the way, it's all political, right? Mm-hmm. And so many politicians win elections on, on this stuff. And what really we need to do is put money and energy into prevention and also assistance for victims, right? This country acts like it cares about victims and victims are so left behind in terms of access to resources, treatment, um, also how society treats victims. So I'm getting kind of (laughs) uh, off track here, but yeah, the recidivism rate for sex offenders is anywhere between some studies as low as like 4%, other studies as high as like 12 to 20%. Of course, the 20% is um, a subcategory of offending. What I will say in general is it's around between six and 12. Uh, percent. Um, so the vast majority of them don't reoffend. And so where does this misconception come from that sex offenders are such, are so compulsive? Well, a lot of it comes from media. And ironically, a lot of it um, actually, and there's a New York Times article about this, when the Supreme Court passed the 1996 SORNA laws, the justification, which was a registry, the justification amongst other things. The justification to pass these laws was based on, and I am not exaggerating this, an article that was pub- 
blog essentially published in psychology, I guess an article back then in psychology today in like the seventies or eighties that stated that sex offenders have an 80% recidivism rate. And when you, and when people started looking into this, they found that this was an article written by a counselor, somebody in private practice, no research experience. Literally, yes. He, in my opinion, they've recidivated to 80%. (laughs) That's so arbitrary. It sounds insane. And again, anybody can do this research. Again, the New York Times published an article about it a few years ago. Um, And this was the basis for a Supreme Court decision. And so, (laughs) and if you ask people, most people, when they think of sex offender, they think of a compulsive pedophile who, you know, is so dangerous needs to be locked away forever because they can't stop offending. And that is just not the case. The, the reality is if you're worried about safety for victims, it's way more likely to be somebody in your family, somebody, you know, um, than, and, and not always a pedophile necessarily. So it's very complicated, but I will say um, what I wish I had known is, is that, um, the recidivism rate is not, is not, um, the way it is for other offenders. And also that, um, treating sex offenders is like treating any population. You, one size does not fit all. Right. Um, so, so yeah. And, and that takes really being aware of, um, research, being aware of what works in treatment. Um, you can't kind of just go into this and think everybody's the same and that it's, everything's going to work, you know, for the same person. So yeah, it's, um, I wish I had essentially done more research, (laughs) um, before I worked this population. So it's a lot. Um, so do you have any advice for listeners who are currently working with mandated clients or who have an interest in the forensic field? Yes. Like I kind of just said, do your research. Um, it's really hard work. And in so many contexts in forensics, burnout is almost feels like inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really scary and dangerous because if you're burnt out, you may miss things, right? And essentially, you know, when you work with this population, your job is in part community safety, public safety, right? These folks are coming to you mandated for a reason. Sometimes these reasons are arbitrary. Sometimes I don't always agree with them, but there's still most of the time somebody is coming to you because they harm somebody, because they have really poor boundaries, because they could be a risk to themselves or somebody else. So even though, yes, we know the recidivism rate isn't super high with sexual offending, um, it does not mean that this person is having a health has healthy relationships, right? Or knows right. how to be in healthy relationships. So, and that's the risk involved in that, um, just interpersonally. So, if that makes sense, um, it's so important to take care of yourself if you're working with mandated clients and be in your own therapy. So, find a therapist. Adequate supervision is one thousand percent necessary which sounds obvious but you'd be surprised how bad supervision can be in some of these contexts or no supervision at all and i mean clinical supervision um 
And um, yeah, I guess advice working with mandated clients is um, don't be afraid to be direct. And um, really motivational interviewing is one of your best tools. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, at the end of the day, you know, the person across from you is a person. And if you sort of already decided who they are or you have assumptions about them based on the criminal history, they're going to pick up on that and they're not going to open up to you at all. Why should they? And so definitely check your own kind of biases at the door. That does not mean that you don't have boundaries. It just is something to be aware of um, because you know, therapy is a conversation and you have to have, have conversations with people, even if they're made, even, even if they committed horrible offense, you still have to be able to have a conversation with the other person who's in front right. of you. Right. Okay. Well, switching gears a little bit here to more about you as a therapist. Um, what kind of experience do you have working with? Well, I think we answered this, but with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender and documented or BIPOC to name a few examples. Like what has my clinical experience been like? Yeah, like in terms of, of those populations and, and vulnerable populations in general. So most of my career has been with BIPOC individuals based on where I've worked. Um, and the scary thing about forensic settings is how many white counselors there are and few therapists of color and also then how therapists of color are treated. Um, and so part of my graduate training was really emphasized, not only cultural competent counseling, cause like, what does that mean? But racial identity, which means exploring my own racial identity, right? Because one of the biggest mistakes white therapists will make is thinking that because you're white, you don't have race. Right. Um, and that almost kind of like the default to everything is whiteness, if that makes sense. So it's like, no, you really need to understand your relationship to your own race to work with any other, any person in general, um, and especially somebody of a different race. So that's the biggest thing. Um, and so my own experience has really been about exploring my own racist internalized ideas, right. That I've, I've had based on where I grew up, family, media that I've consumed, um, and knowing that uh, that's always going to be something I'm going to be kind of dealing with. And so, you know, working with Black and Indigenous clients of color, um, yeah, it's not as if like, oh, I did this, you know, kind of work, quote unquote. So now I'm, I'm good. Like, no, it's always going to be in the room and, um, and should be processed, but also not just processed when you want to process it. Right. So I think another <laughs> mistake that I have made and that a lot of white therapists make is like, okay, let's talk about our racial differences and like what it means to you. And that's actually taught in a lot of training programs and it's sort of like well who is that for like are you having that conversation for yourself to like prove how woke you are or something um and so i've gone through my own sort of uh experiences with that and kind of questioning like where are my questions coming from and yeah um and so 
in terms of gender identity, sexual orientation, gender expression, I've on an ACT team had one client who was trans and in private practice, not my private practice, one that I worked for, one client who uh, was struggling with uh, gender identity and expression. People often struggle to schedule an appointment, right? Then they get themselves to call and make an appointment or send the email or whatever. And then a lot of people will spend the time between scheduling that appointment and the appointment itself just super anxious about it, right? And so to help with that particular anxiety that people may feel about starting therapy, what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? Um, initial session, I always tell clients, like, I'll be asking you a lot of questions in the initial session, uh, but not the whole time. So I usually do kind of half and half first half asking questions. Um, and the second half processing, whatever you're coming in for, um, because I do have a questionnaire, like an intake form. And so I, I kind of don't really want to be asking clients the same questions twice or, or questions mm-hmm. they're going to answer in the intake form that we can process later. I'm pretty casual. Um, I'm not super formal, I would say. And so, and it's different for everybody, you know, some people come in and it's kind of like, okay, I can tell you're going to come in for a few sessions. And then other people, it's like, okay, you're looking for long-term therapy. Um, again, one size does not fit all. So my approach can differ just based on what a client is looking for, but generally speaking, um, I'll be asking you a lot of questions, getting to know you in the first half of our session. The second half, we kind of get right into what's bringing you in. Okay. How would you say your clients describe or experience you? I think it's changed. Um, I used to be probably more... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? (laughs) Um guarded okay and i think lots of therapists can identify to this when you're starting out you know you're kind of afraid to show your personality you're worried about boundaries you self-disclosure is very difficult thing to kind of learn how to do correctly um and now i'm a lot more confident in kind of showing my personality to my clients because why would i not do that Mm -hmm. um and so i think they would probably describe me as as warm as non-judgmental um but also direct um and and i ask a lot of sort of pointed questions um and what i've learned also is to which took a while not be afraid to make mistakes or uh ask hard questions or you know kind of go there with clients um and and then process uh, really, you know, how, you know, what happens if, you know, maybe I say something that clients don't like, okay, what does that mean? You know, how are we going to talk about it? And, and how can that actually, um, lead to modeling, you know, assertive communication, which a lot of clients that come to me really struggle with. They struggle with confronting people in their lives. They struggle with sort of setting boundaries. They can do that online (laughs) or through text, right? Um, but really struggle with kind of in-person assertive communication. Um, so that's kind of a, a tangential <sighs> thought, but, um, 
yeah, I think probably warm but direct and um, sometimes goes on tangents. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do the same thing. Um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Of course. Every therapist is. If they're saying they're not, they're just not. <laughs> You'd going. be surprised at the answers I've gotten. Really? I mean, yeah. I will say, I don't remember. I've only processed my own. I don't think I've, I'm, I'm sorry, I should explain this. I don't know if I've ever really cried with a client. I have teared up and processed that only a few times. But I've, there's been many times that I have teared up and I haven't processed it with a client. Meaning, when I say process, I mean, telling the client, um, I don't, you know, I, I'm feeling really sad right now. I'm noticing myself getting tearful. Like, what is that like for you? Cause a lot of times I don't, I don't feel I need to do that if it's obvious. And I'm sort of like really, you know, feeling, uh, that it's obvious that I'm really touched. I will bring it in. Um, but a lot of the times I'll just sort of, instead of saying like, I don't know if you notice that I'm crying or it's obvious that I'm crying, I'll say, I'm feeling really sad in this moment. And I'll kind of self-disclose around that. Um, so I guess the answer is yes, of course. Um, and then laughing always. Um, I, and, and, you know, yeah. it, it, it had never occurred to me before that I, I need to also, like, define the degree of crying that I mean with this question. Because, yeah. like, you know, when I've asked this question, I've gotten, like, just, like, straight up, like, no, it's, you know, it's not about you. It's about the client, which I, I get. But, like, I don't mean when I say cry in this question, I don't mean like sobbing uncontrollably. Right. I mean more like getting a little tearful, like that sort of thing. And and I think that it, it's inevitable that you're going to get tearful in a session at some point in your career. I mean, so much of what we do, there are moments that are extremely touching. There are moments that are extremely sad and, you know, uh, enraging too. You know, I, I think it's human. Um, and, and, it, and like what, what makes it, like the thing we need to be careful for is that it's not about us. It's not about our stuff. You know, when we're crying in response to like empathy for somebody, like to me, that's not, that's not about my stuff. That's, you know, I deeply feel what they feel and, you know, I, I want to let them know that, um, you know, but like, I mean, yeah. So levels here, not, not sobbing uncontrollably more right. so like just being a little tearful because yeah. sobbing uncontrollably would definitely be inappropriate, right? Yes, that would make, make it impossible for the client not to feel like they have to sort of somehow take care of you. In that moment. Right. Um, I think a couple of things. I have had clients share with me who have had particularly traumatic backgrounds that therapists have cried and it just felt exhausting after a while. It's like, okay, I know mm -hmm. that my story is intense and it's like, okay, really now I'm great. Now I'm like, that even sounds if, like on the inappropriate sobby kind of level there. Yeah. Or even if the therapist is sort of processing, oh my God, I'm, I'm feeling so sad. You know, I think for some clients, right, who, uh, and then it's sort of like, you know, is there space for them to process how they feel about mm -hmm. it? Um, but the truth is, if you're a therapist, you're going to get tearful. I'm sorry. Maybe, maybe some people not, but it, I think most of the time at some point you will. And either it's because you're really empathizing and that can be a really powerful tool and actually really connecting with you and your client or because you were triggered. Right. Your mom just died. 
right? My mom has cancer and thank God, you know, she's still alive and she's in treatment. But I would, of course, be totally untruthful if I was to say that, you know, if a client came in and was grieving, you know, a parent loss to cancer, of course, that's going to impact me. Right. The question is, what is my own work around regulating myself in the session? Right. How do I know when I'm over identifying or projecting or, you know, my own experience is somehow clouding my judgment. All of that is my own work. I talk about with my therapist or the supervisor, but um, you're always going to have clients who are going to bring something up in you. That's what therapy mm-hmm. is. It's like right. what that is. And then you can actually use that to process and, and, and uh, deepen the relationship in a way that is therapeutic. Of course, mm-hmm. there's ways that cannot be, can be inappropriate, but um it's a fine line to walk and yes. we work, our work is done primarily in the gray. Let's be honest. Oh, 1000%. But <laughs> what I love about therapy is like, and again, talking about even this you know, discussion on sex offender treatment, nothing is black and white. Nothing right. is good or evil. You can't think in those binary ways when you're a therapist. If you do, you're probably going to, to have a really hard time. Same goes for gender and thinking in a binary way. It's just as damaging. Exactly. Um, Okay, so this next question is one of my favorites. How do you define holding space for someone? Kind of goes into what we just talked about a little bit. Yeah. It's changed, again, how I think about this because like what does holding space mean like people say that a lot and I'm like what does that mean um I think shutting up for me personally is what I've learned to do more so being comfortable with silence um when somebody is really if we're really getting somewhere good and processing something and allowing space for a client just to kind of just be with you in that moment because I struggle with silence myself as a therapist um like lots lots of therapists do lots of clients do but if you can learn to do it and do it well that can be really really powerful and so not feeling the need to kind of fill space i guess is ironic (laughs) right ironically like how i i guess think about uh holding space for clients um It's a very nebulous concept. Yeah. But I think we all know what it means. And we all mean the same thing, although the words that we may use to describe it are different. Yeah, I think acceptance comes up for me too, right? Um, Non-judgment. Exactly. Not only of who your client is, but of what they're feeling in that moment. Mm-hmm. It goes back to the silence part. Um and also, but then also from there, it's like, you know, you don't just want to just not say anything, right? Right, right. As you're processing, sort of, okay, you're holding space and then helping your client feel seen, mm-hmm. right? And validating that. And that really, I guess, yeah, that's how I would consider holding space. Yeah. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Oh, this is such a good question. You know, 
I don't know if this is the best advice, just popped into my head. And again, this is in the context of like forensic work. That our clients are more resilient than we think. Mm-hmm. And we're not as therapists probably as important as we sometimes think we are. So it's like this idea that you're going to traumatize. And by the way, yes, there are bad therapists who can do bad things and they can be incredibly traumatizing. So I'm going to couch that, couch this with that. But to assume that we have a, how am I going to explain this? I guess it's really about taking risks. If you don't take risks as a therapist, I don't really know what you're doing, right? Um, and this is not mean being provocative. Um, I mean, taking risks in terms of really going there with your clients, um, with processing emotion, with asking difficult questions, with exploring the nuances of all kinds of experiences like grief or relationships or whatever. Um, and so my supervisor said, you know, it was sort of like, yeah, don't be afraid for your clients. Like don't project this fragility onto them because right. they are more, more resilient than you think. Um, and, you know, one thing you say is not going to, you know, traumatize somebody forever. Most of the time, of course, there's exceptions to this right. because when you're operating from that place of assuming that like somebody who's, let's say a victim of a sexual assault, is somehow then always a victim or somehow a victim in other areas of their life. Like that's really, I think, problematic. Um, yeah, for sure. So again, yeah. Um, don't assume that your clients are more fragile than they are. It's a good one. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Mm-hmm. I feel like this is an especially pertinent question given the type of work that you what did I learn about myself in the world? Yeah. Hmm. It's a really interesting response. I didn't think I was going to say this. I have learned that I'm more sensitive than I ever thought I was. And that I'm not the best or right therapist for everybody. And this includes sex, some sex offenders. I mean, nor should we be. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, but I, I prided myself on like, I'm hardcore. I can deal with any situation. I put myself, not by my own choice, always working in forensics in very dangerous situations, um, looking back. And I kind of prided myself on that. And that was really my own stuff like it that wasn't about my clients at that point it was sort of my own kind of like i don't know i don't know how i explain that um it it was not coming from i guess an authentic place of knowing myself if that makes sense and yes Mm -hmm. that's a part of who i am but really what i learned in this work especially with offenders is that a lot more sensitive than i thought and um definitely kind of what I talked about with black and white thinking, right? That there's, you know, everything is always nuanced. And then with the world, I guess 
I guess I'd have to say kind of repeat again what I said about clients being more resilient, that people, no matter what they have been through, first of all, people can get used to anything. Humans can adjust really well. Um, and that uh, to any situation that they're in and that, um, yes, trauma impacts so much of how people see the world and also you know, can have such an, an impact on how people can view themselves, but it's like a piece of the puzzle, you know, so it doesn't define somebody. And um, there are people who have been through things that are unimaginable, who, um, you know, and again, are extremely resilient and, and aren't defined by those things. It's not who they are. It's like something that happened to them. So yeah, that's what I would say. Okay. So, you know, that work is super stressful. I mean, being a therapist in general is super stressful. I mean, especially at times things, you know, depending what you have on your caseload, <clears throat> how many people you have, et cetera, you know, just being a mental health professional is hard work. What do you do to take care of yourself? And is there one thing you just absolutely have to do for yourself after a long, hard day? Hmm. Well, one thing I have to do in general is therapy. So I'm in a group and I also see a therapist um, and I have for a few years now, a couple of years. Um, and uh, after a long, hard day exercise. And by the way, I hate exercising. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at it. I like, I don't know, run like, what is it? 12 minute. Like it, I, that's not necessary to say, but my point is I'm not good at it, but I do it anyway because it does help. Um, and so I would say, yeah, exercise for the daily stuff. I always feel it when I don't. And by the way, it can be like taking a walk, but really just doing something to kind of get into your body, especially working with sex offenders, because you do take home a lot, at least in the beginning I did. And there is a degree of vicarious trauma that is kind of unavoidable, you know, when you're hearing... Part of sex offender treatment is exploring offenses in detail. I'd have these things replaying in my mind. I had it impact my own, without sharing too much, relationships. So, okay, how do you deal with that? You really got to get out of your head and connect more with your body. And it can be anything, but for me, that was exercise. Um, Makes a lot of sense. My next is my other favorite question. How do you define happiness? I just listened to a hidden brain podcast about this. Um, and essentially what it said is kind of like happiness isn't sustainable. It's sort of, it's not a goal really, but so many people think of it as a goal. Um, but the definition itself, I heard a definition once that I really like, which is happiness is the, the degree or the capacity we have for spontaneity. So like the degree to which you will, I guess, can feel spontaneous or allow spontaneity into your life, which is really interesting because that kind of implies happiness is associated with flexibility, which I think it is. Right. Um, and new experiences, which I think it is. So yeah, that's what I would say for myself. Um, I always thought of myself as like a very kind of like, oh, like cheerful person and I'm happy. And <laughs> But some my friends would kind of describe me as being uh, 
or if I had gotten feedback that I can be um, really kind of like uh, introspective and, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, not that way. And so I really thought about like, hmm, okay, what is happiness for myself? And um, yeah, I, I think of it, I guess, just as um, not a goal so much as kind of like, okay, you know, how, how much do I allow myself to kind of sit with joy, right? And what am I doing to maximize that in my life? And sometimes it's not a lot and sometimes it's more. So, yeah. Okay. Next is a vulnerable question. You already answered the other one about being in therapy, which I'm glad to hear because I can't like, I don't know that I'd be able to do that work. Um, but what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician to date? Oh my god. Um okay, what is the most embarrassing moment as a clinician to date? I mean, there's probably It's hard because it's like, okay, what's embarrassing versus like, what is something that I did that was, I don't know, like forgetting a client. No, actually, no, I, I never forgot a client's name. Anything that you would consider that you feel embarrassed about is what, what applies here. Okay. This is a really interesting question. I really like it. And it's hard to answer. Um, it's a very vulnerable question. Yeah, it is. Hmm. I worked in a hospital. I don't know if this counts. Hopefully, I wasn't really a clinician. I was a tech. This is kind of before grad school. We'll count. We'll count it. But I, I ran a group before I was ready to run a group. And I didn't prepare for it. And I was talking about, I don't know, some topic. And it was a group of adolescent teens that were impatient and they turned on me Oh no! because they knew I had no idea what I was talking about. Uh -huh. They were really astute in their criticism and they were like yelling at me and they're like, you know, like get out of here. And that was pretty embarrassing. Um, and then I guess otherwise, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, don't do this regularly, but sometimes I will think without, talk without thinking, <laughs> which is like therapists, you know, it's part of our job is learning how to regulate that, but I don't always. And so sometimes I'll blurt something out or I'll say something that's kind of like, what, why did I just say that? And I felt embarrassed <laughs> for, for sure. Um, yeah. That's well, Izzy. Yeah, I know. I mean, so many people, I, I feel like I've gotten so many good interviews and so many people that come on this show are just so vulnerable. And I think that's a part of like what makes this hopefully an effective resource for people, you know? Um, but is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you or the work that you do?
I'm still learning. Um, everybody is. Um, but that's something that I think, I don't know, I guess is, is relevant. Um, I'm new to private practice. I've been a ther- I've been, God, I've been a clinician for like 10 years, but I've only been a therapist in doing psychotherapy for probably less than about four years now. And so I, my time, actually people should know, like my, how I think about time is always a struggle for me. Like I am, (laughs) um, I definitely am, am not the most kind of like regimented person or therapist. Um, that doesn't mean I'm late to sessions. It just means that, um, I'm, I'm not super rigid, um, with anything, but yeah. So I guess, I don't know why I felt the need to share that, but maybe, maybe it's good for people to know that I'm, I'm definitely back. Yeah. Thank you. Laid back. I'm still learning. Um, but one thing that I'm always confident in that I've never not felt this way is I've never not felt curious about clients and I've never not felt the huge responsibility that it is to be a therapist. So, um, yeah, our job is not easy. Um, and it's not something to kind of take lightly. So I do, you know, before taking on a new client, I always think about the capacity I have to help that person. Um, cause once I, I do have a, a client, I, I will, I will always show up, um, in, in every way that I can. And that looks different for different people, but yeah, that's what I would say. But I am still learning. We all are. I mean, I think that this, I think, I think it would be remiss of a therapist to be like, oh, well, I know all I need to know. I'm done here. You know, like we, in this field, we have to continually keep learning. Uh, I mean, it's a necessity to being effective in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Just like any other professional you know, there's a reason why people have conferences and I need to keep up to date with current research and medical journals, same thing for therapists and getting journals every night. I'm definitely not, but, um, you know, it's it's definitely a part of our work. Well, Izzy, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Erica Heller, licensed clinical social worker and licensed chemical dependency counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, the intersection of sexual orientation, gender, and substance use and experimentation. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. 
please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.